If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Myers and JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to The Craft of Confession, a discussion between three leading authors of memoirs and Abigail Pogerman as part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. New Yorker staff writer Arielle Levy talks about her book, The Rules Do Not Apply. Daphne Merkin about This Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression. And Danny Shapiro about her memoir, Hourglass. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on November 29th, 2017. Applause, real applause. Come on, look at this. We have three star writers who give us hope on a day of endless sexual harassment. We're not even talking about that tonight. Isn't that a relief? This is a safe space. This is a harassment free zone. We have to orient ourselves. There's a few type A's up here. Um, I'm so grateful to these three because I am truly great fans of all of their work. Um, And I really am not just saying this because I didn't just read their books, I listened to all three. I cannot recommend that more highly. There's something about the triumvirate of them together that I recommend. They each stand on their own beautifully, but um, you'll see, it's an incredible symphony. So buy their books when we're done. That's, That's the contract, that's the Jewish contract at the JCC. Ariel Levy. Ariel Levy is the, thank you, we practiced and I already failed, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Rules Do Not Apply, which we're talking about tonight. Her first book was called Female Chauvinist Pigs. After graduating from Wesleyan University, she worked for Planned Parenthood, but they fired her after just one week because of her poor typing skills. (laughs) Almost immediately thereafter, she was hired at New York Magazine as a typist. She kept typing there for 12 years because she became their star contributor. Uh, and in 2008, she was lured to the New Yorker as a staff writer where she, was, where she has written about subjects including Edith Windsor, the Supreme Court plaintiff whose lawsuit paved the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage, Nora Ephron, and the record-shattering swimmer Diana Nyad, um, and Prime Minister of Italy Berlusconi, who is a molester, or or a harasser. (laughs) I said we were going to leave them out. Levy was the editor of the Best American Essays 2015 and the winner of a 2013 National Magazine Award for her essay, Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Incredible essay, I'm sure all of you have read. So let's applaud Um, and she's in the flowers, if anyone's confused. Daphne Merkin, in the middle, is the author of the memoir, I also loved This Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression. She is a former staff writer for The New Yorker, there's a lot of New Yorker tonight, and a regular contributor to Elle. She has written a novel called Enchantment, and two collections of essays, I love the 2014 title, The Fame Lunches, on wounded icons, money, sex, the Brontes, and the importance of handbags. Her writing appears in the New York Times, Departures, Travel and Leisure, W Vogue, so many publications. Her essay collection, The Fame Lunches, was one of the New York Times book reviews, 100 Notable Books of the Year. In addition to this year's memoir, she's the author, uh, I said that, of a novel. Um, And she teaches uh, writing workshops privately and at the Writing Center at Hunter College and the 92nd Street Y. Daphne has never learned to drive, a deficit which she hopes to address one of these days. And she lives in New York City with her daughter. Welcome, Daphne. 
And last but not least, Danny Shapiro is the best-selling author, we have a lot of bestsellers here, of the memoirs Hourglass, Still Writing, Devotion, and Slow Motion. Uh, Still Writing is a memoir, but it's also, I would say, a, an essential book for writers. And five novels, including Black and White fa and Family History. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, One Story, L, The New York Times Book Review, the op-ed pages of The New York Times, The LA Times, and has been broadcast on This American Life. Danny was recently Oprah Winfrey's guest, yes she was, with really good shoes, on Super Soul Sunday. Um, amazing interview. She has taught in the writing programs at Columbia, NYU, The New School, and Wesleyan. She is co-founder of the Siren Land Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. Incredibly competitive. You're not going to get in. It's amazing. A contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler. Danny lives with her family in Litchfield County, Connecticut. And I have to confess, full disclosure, she is one of my closest friends. Welcome, Danny. So I just want to start with why this book now? You all are obviously prolific and you're doing a lot of things all the time. To write a memoir is a decision. So why don't we start with you, Danny? What, what made you decide to write this book now? And also, if you could add, what gave you the most pause? So I was away um, teaching at a... Um, at, 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 a, at a writer's conference where I was isolated a lot of the time um, in this cottage in the middle of Florida. And I think if I hadn't been this isolated, the idea for Hourglass, not the idea, just like this voice in my head that said, this this is what you're most afraid of, this is what you most need to write about, this is this, this subject, essentially marriage, your marriage, um, uh, this voice was saying to me, um, I realized it had been what I had been avoiding. That I, that I was kind of pussyfooting around. Um, I had been working on an essay that I thought was about time and inheritance. And just one day in the quiet of this cottage in Florida, I thought, I know it's the JCC, but I thought, <laughs> you know, what I, what I really, what, I, what I'm avoiding is marriage. And I had come across this quote of Wendell Berry's where he talked about the troubles of duration in a long relationship. And I thought, I want to write about that. And, and what gave me the most pause was writing about my marriage. I mean, so often when people do write about their marriages, it's from the rear view window. It's from that, that it's from it's blown up and I'm going to write about the blowing up of it, or I'm going to write about the affair or the, you know, the, the misery. And I was trying to write from a place of complicated contentment and that seemed worth doing, but it was also really scary. And I know this is a you know a moderator's privilege, but because I do know you don't name your husband, but I happen to know him. I know that it's a good marriage, very good marriage, and that could be a very boring book. <laughs> so the idea of complicated contentment, how was that something that you knew? You can't just write about how cozy and you are and how close you are. And it obviously there's at every marriage is complicated, but what what did you sort of say to yourself because you also teach this that was going to be necessary to make this alive and layered and nuanced and, and frankly interesting? Well, first I understood, and this is why it was so scary, that I had to hold our feet to the fire. That it it, it couldn't be um, I mean, why write about the burnished picture? Um, I mean, there's actually a moment in hourglass where social media kind of plays into the book in certain ways. And at one point I write about um, what goes on Instagram. And then a couple of pages later, there's a passage that begins, here's what doesn't go on Instagram. So it was that the interest that I had in, and I couldn't have articulated this at the time. And I, I wonder whether the two of you have had this experience too. Like I, writers become articulate about our books after we've written them. These weren't things I understood while I was writing, but there was a sense of, um, of wanting to discover. I mean, another thing about memoir is, if you know what happened, why write it? I, 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 I wanted to sort of be an investigative journalist into marriage using my marriage as, 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 my, as my guide. Um, and, and I understood that that was going to mean 
Also, I was writing from the middle of a life, hopefully, and from the middle of a marriage, hopefully. And so there was also a sense of um, what, what, is, what is that? Middles are shapeless. So I was going to have to find a way to give shape to something that doesn't have shape in the middle of, of, of a marriage. And that, um, like f discovering the, uh, the reasons why, the, um, the ways in which we are alike and different, the ways that that has shaped both for good and for difficulty um, our relationship. That was what I was, was going after. Daphne? Why why do this now, and what, what almost stopped you? Well, I was almost stopped for about um, 15 years. I wrote the, um, I wrote in, I think, 2001, a piece in The New Yorker called The Black Season about depression, my own depression, and my hospitalization for depression, and... Um, thought I would write a book and got a attractive book contract. And um, the years would sort of go by, and I felt a lot of resistance. So there is, in general, I think, an anxiety of disclosure about certain subjects. And I felt that I didn't want to, didn't know exactly how to make a book about depression, talk about plotless how to give it shape, um, how to make it not depressing to read. Um, so there were these various difficulties that I should have thought through before I took the book contract, but I didn't. And um, I eventually ended up writing another piece many years later for the Times Magazine, again about long-term depression and being hospitalized, and again, the issue came up of a book. And so three book contracts later, hmm. I sat down to write the book, having figured out a little more what the path through to creating a, I hoped, sustained and readable, even compelling manuscript about a, an illness that largely declares itself through a lack of effect, you know, a lack of connection, a lack of energy. How do you make that? But I also continued to feel that I hadn't read what I wanted to read on the subject of depression. I had read everything that was out there, but I somehow wanted to make the inside of depression, what it feels like um, to the depressed person real to people both who suffered from depression and didn't suffer from depression. Um, and another, another part of it that was important to me was just to try and make an ongoing life around suffering from chronic depression. And you, you said at one point that you wanted to write a seductive book about depression, and it, it actually completely is and compulsively readable. And I, it's hard for me to unpack kind of why. I'm sure you know what makes it work, what makes it so successful. But in terms of structure, is there a sense of what the pitfalls are when the book could essentially be a bummer you know, for people? Like, I don't know if I want to sit with a sad thing or a hard thing this long. What do you, as a an, sort of an accomplished craftsperson, say to yourself about what you need to do to keep it not necessarily bouncing along, but well-paced and in a weird way suspenseful? Um, I'm not sure I totally know the answer to that. I think part of it is I was very, I've, I, I was conscious while writing it very much of I think pacing helps enormously. Like enough of this episode, as far as I could tell, you know, I would think of the reader. Does the reader, um, so I'd literally like work in, first of all, the structure changed a lot from the beginning to the end. Um, I made a rather late decision thanks to a wonderful editor to 
put in more of my actually functioning life. <laughs> that the book didn't need to, you know, be I'm depressed, I'm depressed, and once in a while I get up. Um, <laughs> so that was a sort of late decision, that there were things I had done. I was a writer, whether I forgot it or not. So that came late. Okay. Ariel, uh, why now? And also, because you wrote this piece that was so talked about, did you feel like, I've done it, I don't want to necessarily put it in a book, I don't want to necessarily revisit it, I've said all I need to say, or that it's a gem on its own? I, I wrote a, a piece, I wrote an essay uh, that was sort of like a bullion cube of like this intense, boiled down experience. And when I finished, I just felt like I wasn't done. I just felt like I had more to say. And I just knew that the story I had in, I mean, first of all, like when you were saying at the beginning, oh, you're all very productive. I'm not. I hadn't written a book in a dozen years, so I'm not. And and what I usually do is write articles, write journalism about other people. And and part of what was interesting to me about doing this was that when you're when you're writing an article about, you know, something else that's happening in other people's lives, you're piecing together the truth to the best of your ability from what other people are telling you and you're reconciling their accounts and maybe you're there for little bits so that you can, you know, give a visual experiential sense of a scene. But really you don't know, right? So I thought it would be exciting and it frankly was to try to write something where my... Um, What's the word? Where my agenda, I guess, was to try to tell the truth as exactly as I could. As and, you know, I mean, it, keeping in mind that it's it's just my own blinkered perspective. But I thought it would be. I just thought that would be an exciting thing to to not have to always be mushing a truth together from what you heard and saw, but from, you know, having been there and knowing it from the inside out. And that was cool. That was exciting to try to do that. But mostly, I just had this feeling that I knew it would it was a book. And I mean, I think I was so struck in this um, new documentary about Joan Didion. I can't remember if it's HBO or Netflix that her nephew did. And he was asking her, you know, what was your agreement with your husband, who was also a writer, about your marriage? And she sort of said, well, our agreement was that we were writers and we were looking for material. And that's just the truth. I mean, I just was so struck by how honest she was. The other thing she says in that movie that's so honest is he's asking her what it was like to come across this five-year-old tripping in the 60s. And she was like, oh, I just thought it was gold. And I was so amazed. I was like, she is not pulling any punches. Like, because that's the, that's the ever-loving truth, is as a writer, you're looking for material. You're looking for something you think you can tell well that's a good story. And I just felt like this is, I think this is a good story. If I heard it about someone else, I'd want to tell it. I'm not going to disqualify it because it's about me. And in fact, I think it might be kind of thrilling to attempt accuracy in this other way that doesn't have to do with journalism. And it, it was, it was exciting to my brain. And when, when you talk about truth, I think that's an important word here, as to the truth is your version. Very much so. And it's pretty unvarnished in your book. I mean, for, as far as I right, see exactly. it. And you're not worrying about how you look, how you appear. But I am. Imagine how much I didn't tell. <laughs> no, really, really. So tell me about that. Ha! No. <laughs> so without telling me what you left out, how do you decide what to leave out? Be the same way, because, it, because all I do every day for 20 years is figure out right, what's a good story, what makes a good arc, what makes a good beginning, middle, end, what's dramatic, what does the reader need, right? That's, I do feel like that's what I, the little bit I ta I've taught was always saying to students, at Wesleyan also, was saying, you have your job that what makes you a professional writer and not someone monkeying around in your room is that you're putting the reader's needs first. So even if it's fun and exciting to try to tell the truth, blah, 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 
at the end of the day, you better be a professional. You better be thinking what is going to make this the best story it possibly can. So I left out all sorts of stuff. Not, I mean, I'm sure some things I left out because of my ego, but I think, I honestly think that the, the biggest thing for my ego is as a writer, right? So really, what am I, I'm not going to leave something out that's good for the story. Right. So can I pick up on that with Daphne? Um, it, Andrew Solomon, who I actually went to camp with, believe it or not, wrote in a rave review, she is perfectly content to ensure that you admire her, not at all. Hmm. <laughs> so I'd like you both to address that, but let's start with Stephanie. I'm sorry, with Daphne. What is that concern of how ugly can this get, in a sense, or how naked can this get? Um, I'm not sure my purpose was to be completely unadmirable, but I leave <laughs> that to and Andrew's take. I, I've always been fascinated by writers who dare to make themselves unlikable, who don't feel... Um, a need to sort of justify, endear themselves to the reader. I think it's a harder, um, a harder road. But I could, the, the, the memoirs that have fascinated me over the years usually are not necessarily, I mean, they're not all by crusty, horrible people, <laughs> but they're not necessarily endearing. So I think... Um, so then just have to be well-written. Right, right. And they just have to be good books. True. <laughs> and I'm always interested when people put their own vulnerabilities, their own shortfalls out on the page. Me too. Danny. Be because this is why we read. Mm -hmm. True. Right. I mean, anyone who fell in love with reading at whatever point we fell in love with reading fell in love in part because... There was an inner life on the page that we recognized and thought, wow, like, I didn't know anybody else felt that way. I mean, I recently met Judy Bloom, and it was like, I felt like I met Mick Jagger. It was yeah, like, yeah. I mean, she was like, are you, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. It was like, that was the book that sort of saved me, you know, as, as a kid, um, just from the feeling that my inner life wasn't that... Um, unique or shameful or different. And, um, and so I think, you know, for the writer writing memoir, um, well, first of all, you're, you're writing about other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we always are. We have to be because if we're telling our story, we're telling it in a context. And so the first person that we need to be sort of merciless with is ourselves. Um, but it is always in service of ourselves as a character. And that's like, to go back to what Daphne was saying earlier, it's, it's, there's like, there's the self, but there's also, the, it's never the unvarnished, it's never the unvarnished self on the page. That's for diaries. And people misunderstand so often the difference between, like I'll sometimes say, that I have to say to like enthusiastic readers, you didn't read my diary. If you'd read my diary, I'd have to kill you. You know, it's, it's a completely different, um, Enterprise, the enterprise of making oneself um, a protagonist, a character, a persona on the page. But that doesn't mean like protecting oneself, right. I think. It, it, it actually is kind of the opposite. Um, it becomes whatever's gold, right? To go back to the Didion, like whatever that is, is what you want to end up on the page because what ends up on the page, you're, you're trying to tell a story that actually is going to connect to that universal thread, to the, to the reader who's going to think, wow, me too. I, and it's always the things that are most terrifying. Mm. It's the sentences, the moments that are like, I can't go there. I, that's, that's, that's too much. At least for me, when I do get past that feeling and go to that place, it is inevitably um, the scene, the passage, the sentence that, um, that, that people most respond to because it has that, um, that sort of raw emotional vitality to it. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality 
roasting his own coffee, and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. So you mentioned other people, and you're all writing about other people in your families, in your life. Um, Ariel, when you think about who's kind of um, collateral damage, mm -hmm. how do you weigh how much you're saying, how identifiable they are, um, and doesn't that, in a way, get in the way of the best story if you're protecting people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, in journalism, it's like it, it doesn't, I don't find, really end up this way. But you're supposed to not care if the person you're writing about likes you because you're supposed to be purely focused on the reader's needs and totally uninterested whether you're hurting the feelings of the person you're writing about. Um, but with this, it's like these aren't subject. They didn't agree to be written about. They're the people who happen to be in my life. Some of them, it was easy. Like, my mom, it was really easy. Like, first of all, I, I know her. I mean, I know her well enough to know how it would be and that it would be fine. And But it also, I also was sort of like, you know, she had sort of encouraged me since I was a little kid. She was always like, long before it was logical to say this, she was like, you can definitely, absolutely, you can be a writer. That's what you want to do. No problem. You know, which is like this great gift. But if you tell your kid that and you have an open marriage, then do the math. Like, what, you know what I mean? So I kind of felt like, all right, mom, like you, we knew this. Let's just I'm doing we knew this was going to happen. I'm going to do it now. And then we can relax for the rest of our lives. And, um, and she approved. Of yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew she like I knew she, I wasn't worried about that. What about the character Lucy? Can My former spouse, I was I was and am very concerned about. And I'm not here to say, oh, it's fine. I don't know if it's fine. I mean, I asked. Did you ask her? Oh, yeah. I mean, before I she was the first person who read it before I turned it into anything. And I said, if there's anything you can't live with, let me know and I'll change it. We'll never know. Like what? To what extent would I have changed things? We'll never know because she characteristically and and because she's a very generous person was like, it's your story. I'm not going to censor you, which is a huge gift. And then technically, right, I'm sort of off the hook. But morally and emotionally, I don't know. I don't know if it was okay. I, I'll never know is the answer to that. And I worry about it. Daphne, your mother is gone but she's obviously the, probably the most powerful figure in the book and very painful to read, honestly. Right. So you didn't need her permission, but in some sense, you were going to be telling the hardest story, it seems to me. What did you, who's the collateral damage there other than yourself? And did you feel like you had to protect her even in death? Um, I had been writing autobiographical pieces for a long time while my mother was still alive, about which she had various responses, sometimes positive, or sometimes she'd say, enough about your sex life, or, you know, suggest that I had exhausted some subject. Um, I did feel protective of my mother, although on some level, um, I also have five siblings, and it is, a, it is a story about a family. So I think this is one of the fascinating things. You never know, and Ariel referred to it before, what the author has decided to leave out 
in a presumably very candid book. There are always ellipses in the candor. So I um, sort of made a decision to, as much as possible, even though it was a family story, and I wasn't the only one in my family who suffered from depression, to sort of go around that issue with my siblings, allude to it. But I did in the end think it is their life. I have to also just add, I think this is something women writers worry about more than male writers. What do you mean? Collateral damage. I've never had a sense that Philip Roth worried about it. <laughs> um, but it seems to me something that when you write, or I, I, I do think when you're writing a memoir autobiographically, there's got to be some degree of incaution, some daring, or you're not going to do it. If you're really terribly afraid, and, and in some ways it, it also happens that the people you least expect are bothered or insulted. Mm. I mean, one of my brothers said to me that I left, I thought he, he could have said much more striking things, but he said in a, when I very quickly go over the, the, the death of our housekeeper, he said, you didn't mention my excellent speech at the funeral. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. Um, so you don't really know what people are gonna do with your narrative. Now, what about your daughter? Because she's obviously crucial to you. Yes. Um, I worried, I think, as a mother reading this, that she would be worrying about you and that you might worry about her worrying about you. Right. Um, right. Because of depression and real discussion of suicide, frank discussion of entertaining it, talking about admiration for those who have pulled it off in some right. cases. How did you navigate that with obviously a pretty sophisticated young woman? I, I, is that comes through? And yeah. You have a close relationship. Right. Book. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming, but that's what comes through again in the memoir. So can you just talk about that sensitivity? Right. Um, I navigated it in part on the assumption that my daughter wasn't going to read much of the book as she hasn't read a lot of what I've written, which I am actually, though I have clucked about it, I'm actually grateful for. Um, I think these things are all decisions that have different things that go into them. For one thing, it wasn't complete news to my daughter that I suffered from depression. She's lived with me. Um, I think in part I, I gave her the sophistication, maybe the credit to both take it personally and not personally. Maybe that's over, out, you know, weighing too much on her, and I'm never sure of that mm -hmm. part of it. Uh, Danny, in terms of your husband, obviously this was a pretty big threshold, whether to write about him, how much you could write about him, whether he was okay with that at all. How did you navigate that initial conversation and then as you were writing the book in real time? Well, the initial conversation I had with him the, the day that I had the realization that this is what I wanted to write about, I called him. Um, I was away and I called him and, and said, I, I think I want to write about us. And he, my husband's a writer, and I think that that probably helped a lot. Um, but he said, go for it. Um, and he, he later said to me that he knew from the day that, he, that we were first together that I would eventually write about him, which is interesting to me because I didn't know that. I, 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 to me, I, I'd written a lot about my parents and about my family um, and about my family history, but somehow I felt like my marriage and my child were off limits and then they stopped being off limits hmm. because you know if if memoirists or writers we, we are our own instrument i mean our consciousness is our instrument and so if the instrument when the instrument changes it's like well what do we do like now and when my son was born i remember looking at him and thinking you did not ask to be born to a mother who's a writer like so now what i'm going to do because i am changed forever by becoming your mother, and I'm gonna to wanna to write about that in some way, so how am I gonna do that and protect your privacy? But in terms of, in terms of Michael, my husband, um, 
our process had always been um, with all of my books ever since we were together that I would share my work with him. He's my first reader. And, um, and I would often actually share my work with him very much in, 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 in process. I would read to him at the end of the day. And he was someone that I could really, really do that with, who like only had my back and wanted me to do better um, and never got in my way. You know, it was like just in support of the work. And in writing Hourglass, the process was no different. I mean, he would come up to my office at the end of the day and I would read him a passage and what we would talk about was the book not our marriage. And I thought about that later and sort of how kind of an extraordinary process that was because it was a creative process. It wasn't a marital reckoning. Like every once in a while there would be something that was difficult. You know, one of those one of those passages that I would be like, oh, can I go there? And there was one in particular where um, after I wrote it, I wasn't sure how he would respond and we were going somewhere in the car. So I brought the pages with me. Um, and I was in the passenger seat and he was driving. No one could go anywhere. And I read him the pages in the car, which is not, not what we usually did. And he, uh, he listened and he paused and, and, and then he said, did you think that would upset me? And I said, well, I didn't know. And he paused again and he said, well, but it's true. And there was tremendous permission in that. There were also moments where he uh, he said to me, you know what, that is going to turn into a pull quote that's going to be taken out of context. And I was like, you are so right. There was, there was never a moment. And, and, and I should also say that when I called him to say, I want to write about us, if he had said, I don't want you to, I actually wouldn't have. Um, so it, it was so nascent and so early. And I was invested in the idea of doing it. But I, I hadn't gone so far that I would have felt like this thing that I desperately want to do is being ripped from me. The fact that you were all living your lives while you were writing about them is kind of an interesting idea because at a certain point you have to stop with the, the time clock or the material. So, Ariel, when you, when you lost that baby, there is talk about wanting a child. A lot of it is about that very powerful drive. Um, and you explore that, but I, I don't sort of know where it, you leave off with that. Did you decide that at a certain point, I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about my beyond this very seismic experience desire to continue to be a mother in some way. Well, I knew where in time the end of the story felt like to mm -hmm. me. The end of the story felt to me like the reemergence of hope from grief. And that to me was, it just felt like the obvious ending of the book. So it wasn't like, oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? To me, I always knew that was the end of this story. So it was sort of immaterial what happened next, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the idea that you fell in love with the doctor who took care of you in Mongolia is a pretty amazing ending. I mean, that's kind of a Hollywood ending, some would say. It's not in the book. What was the decision not to include him uh-huh. If you can say... Should I maybe say what we're talking yeah. about? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, no. I mean... I'm just assuming everyone read that piece. No, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> and they don't have... It's fine. No, um, they do. When I was... I, I, when I was um, five months pregnant, I was going on an assignment uh, for the New Yorker in Mongolia. And it was a big, it was like the last adventure I was gonna have for a long time because I was gonna start this other adventure and be a mother. And the second night I was in Mongolia, I went into labor prematurely and I gave birth in my hotel room. And for 10 minutes, I was somebody's mother. And then uh, the baby died before the ambulance came. And then I, what she's talking about that's not in the book is then I had this weird connection with my doctor at the clinic, but it was like everything was just chaos. And I went back to the United States and then my marriage fell apart. And it was just a, a shit show, which was what I wanted to write about was like that experience of like the center, like just feeling like that, you know, when you have a door and like the lock pops out, do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, have you ever had that? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, the thing is now just this hollow fake door. That I was like, the key bit of my life felt like it just fell out. And I wanted to write about that experience and what had gotten me there and like how 
what got me through it. So anyway, what she's talking about is then subsequently the doctor who I met in Mongolia, we started writing to each other and eventually we sort of became friends and we fell in love. And it's not in, it's hinted at, but it's not in it because again, it just wasn't where this story ended. It wasn't like, it didn't feel like I was sort of withholding. I, I, I would never not put something that I felt like was the good, right ending for, there's no way I would, you know what I mean? Again, it's just like my ego as a writer is too great to, that I would ever make a decision contrary to what I thought was the interest of the book. It didn't strike me as the, as the ending. It just didn't feel like the ending. And it also just felt inaccurate. It felt, you can't really ask a reader, you can't say, and then we fell in love and ask a reader not to think, not to feel that what you're saying is, and then everything was sorted. I was okay. And my, you know, my, back. right. Then my prince came and I was cool, you know, and it just wasn't accurate. It didn't save me from anything. It was a new thing. It was a new story. Um, it just wouldn't, it would have felt like a false ending. And I felt like it would have been a crummy ending. Daphne, the, I, if you can answer, I'm assuming that you were depressed while you were writing about depression. Right, much of the time. So how do you, first of all, write through it? It sounds like the writing was pretty important as a counter to it, in some sense a solve of some kind. Right. But when you were laid low, did you think about your deadline? Did you think about the pages that were sitting there? In other words, and did you think about, I now have more depression to write about, essentially? Like, <laughs> right. Another episode. Um, I think I entertained thoughts that if I committed suicide, the book would be a bestseller. <laughs> that I certainly thought about. Um, I, some of the time, didn't, didn't write. Mm. Um, sometimes the act of getting, going to my desk, sitting down, by that point picking up where I'd left off, I could kind of coax myself back into writing, but I was listening with a lot of interest to what you were saying about um, endings, because mm. I kept thinking the whole time I was writing the book, what kind of ending can there be to a book about a lifetime of depression? I knew I didn't want to write. When I had done a piece for the Times Magazine, they pushed me, as I said to them, to write this sort of, and now we're all, it wasn't precisely now we're all happy and we'll never again see a depressed moment, but it was an up ending. I didn't want precisely what a lot of magazines used to ask for, which was closure. I thought, I don't want closure in this book. I want another opening. Mm. Danny, the, one of the mantras or, that I love in the book is, is your husband saying, I'll take care of it. And later in the book, you write, M is injured and I can't fix things for him. So it struck me that you weren't necessarily able to give him the same reassurance at times. Can you just address what it made you see in yourself in terms of whether you were, in a sense, his rescuer the way he was yours? Well, you know, I think so much of what we're all talking about in terms of memoir is shaping a story, you know, is, is, is actually recognizing the, like, I know where I want this story to end. It's not the entire story of my whole life. Um, I know I want this book to end with, um, with a lack of you know, sort of neatness or closure. And I think because I was writing from the inside of my marriage, I was I was thinking, so that moment where early in the book where, where M says to me, I'll take care of it. And I realized it was something that I loved, that was a big part of our marriage and that I longed to believe. Mm -hmm. And then I realized too, that that's something I think is true in marriage generally, is that like this other person is gonna take care of this for me. And then, you know, be, because I was writing from the middle and from this place of shapelessness and plotlessness, um, there wasn't a story. You know, in, in a way, I knew I was writing a book that begins 
where it ends. It, it was as much about time and walking through time as it was about anything else. So that later in the book, that I think it's near the passage that you're talking about, there was a moment where I looked. I was looking at him late at night. He was sleeping, and I was up, and I was, and I thought to myself, "I'll take care of it." And I thought, like that movement between two people over time is what marriage, is what any long-term partnership is, is that moving back and forth between two people. Um, I can carry us for a while. No, I can carry us for a while. So I think in terms of what you're, that, that, that moment of he's injured and I can't fix it is also, there's a moment later in the book where um, my 93-year-old aunt uh, calls and, 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 I, and I, I start to cry. Um, it's just like a very vulnerable moment. And, um, and she's asking how my husband's spirits are. And at that moment, they aren't great. And I start to cry. And she says, Sweetheart, I remember a really difficult 23-year period. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's a little perspective for you. You know, like, so, so, all right, I guess you have to live to be a nonagenarian <laughs> to have that perspective. But that, it, that was what I wanted to kind of, uh, in a way, um, create on the page was a feeling of, like, it's not just about right now. It's not just about this moment. And, you know, one, one of the things in terms of endings, um, I've had this experience for the last, I don't know, six months since the book came out, of I'll be giving a reading from the book, and in the book it's 18 years. Well, now it's 20 years. In the book, my mother had also, my mother-in-law was suffering from Alzheimer's. She passed away this year. We had two dogs. Now we have one. Our son was 16. Now he's 18. There is such a sense of the velocity and the passage of time, and what memoir does, I think all it ever can do is sort of freeze this moment. This is the story that I can tell now. If you were writing about your depression five years right. from now, it would be a different book, book than what you book. just wrote. And and I, I've, I've often thought it would be a really interesting thing for a writer over a lifetime. They'd have to commit to it really early on, like um, like the Seven Up series, the um, um, to write the same book every ten years, yeah. because oh. it would be a different book, right? <laughs> Since we're at the JCC and you're all Jews, and you all write about Judaism, interesting, or not Judaism, but your Jewish connection or lack of it or culture or the war in some cases or um, a tattoo in an interesting moment in Daphne's book. Just very succinctly, if you could, but how, how important is it and the decision to include it when you know that for some readers, they're, they are not gonna relate to it. It's a very specific thing, right? I, uh, uh, okay. Um, oh God, it just feels like such an overwhelming part of my identity for, I don't even, I don't even know why. I mean, I don't even know why, but I, I mean, just my name and my face, like, <laughs> I just feel like I don't know how I could even attempt to write something about myself that was in any way honest without being like, I'm Jewish. I just am. Okay. <laughs> Daphne. Um, I think I feel similarly to Ariel. I mean, I also grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family well, that's and different. Yeah. was including that upbringing in my book. And also my secret, I think Jane Kenyon wrote a poem about her own melancholia in which she said, if she believed in God, would she have become depressed. There was a side of me that thought, now if I'd stayed orthodox, mm. would that have kept depression at bay? But it was impor important to me to include it as part of, I went to a Jewish day school, of all of what shaped me. And what about the empathy for your mother in that regard as well, and what she went through? Yeah. I mean, Can you I explain for well, the... My, well, both my parents were German Jews who left Germany variously in 1936 and 1939, my father left. And um, my mother's family went to Palestine, what was then called Palestine, for 10 years, and then she came to New York for what was supposed to be a year. I met my father and, but I feel that in some way, she was enormously marked by the loss of her, of many close relatives in the Holocaust, it was a point of reference 
in my childhood, not useful. Hmm. I would I would be, I don't know, homesick in camp and camp and blubbering, and my mother would say, "Just think, you could be in concentration camp." <laughs> um, so in some way, she used it in in extraordinarily odd ways. <laughs> but I think slowly I came to see her as in many ways suffering from a version of survivor's guilt. And Danny, very briefly, because I know you're, oh, so you're there's so much there. Um, uh, you know, like Daphne, I was also raised Orthodox um, in, 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 in somewhat different circumstances and with two parents who were in such conflict with each other about how to raise me Jewishly. My father was from an Orthodox New York family and from, uh, you know, just uh, that, that, that cared, it was very invested in its own um, almost mythology, really. And my mother was from a chicken farm in New Jersey and socialist parents and, uh, and was an atheist. I mean, when, when, when after my father died, one day my mother's best friend said to me, I never understood it. Your mother was an atheist, an atheist with two sinks and two dishwashers. It made no sense. And, and so I was raised with so much conflict around it all, and yet at the same time, so deeply a part of my identity. I mean, just, I mean, how do you separate out, how do you separate out being a woman or right. being, uh, you know, a, a, a mother or a partner or a New Yorker or a, I mean, like, uh, to me, somebody put a gun to my head and say, like, like first three, you know, first three adjectives. Um, Jewish would be right, right there. It's an adjective, right? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank the three of you. I promised them time to sign their books, and they will. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. That was Daphne Merkin, Arielle Levy, and Danny Shapiro talking to Abigail Pogrebin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.